basically it was a bunch of uh, hungry people in a van. Um, and most of our workouts were outside right through the winter. Um, and one of our breakthroughs, I remember getting excited about uh, sourcing conveyor belts from Sleeman's Brewery. You know, I made a connection with a brewer and, and we got old belts off the line and we put them in a hallway here on campus that was about 40 meters long. And that's where we drill. Right now I'm sitting a few hundred meters from Alumni Stadium, hours away from a Speed River workout. The venue is home to the annual Inferno Meet and its track, a super fast bind-in service, is a real point of pride with those connected to the club. To its south is the impressive field house, so instrumental in preparing numerous U-Sports championship track and field teams. Further down the road is a new athletic center, complete with pool, weight rooms, everything you could possibly want to keep a team in top-notch conditioning. There's no doubt that the Speed River facilities are some of the best around, but as the cliche goes, Rome wasn't built in a day, and what we see now and some of the intangibles that we don't see, like team culture, is the result of years of clawing and scratching, innovation, and a lot of trial and error. This week we uncover some of the origins of the club in a candid chat with the guy who has been here since the start, Dave Scott Thomas. Hello and welcome to Something in the Water. A look at the Speed River Track and Field Club and University of Guelph Track and Field team, available on CitiousMag.com and a part of the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. This is a series I'll be examining the details of the famed groups from Guelph, Ontario that have claimed to Olympians, seven that went to Rio last summer, national record holders, and some of Canada's fastest active marathoners on both the men's and women's side, to name a few. Now, that sort of success doesn't normally happen quickly or by accident, so how did they get to this place? Well, this week we'll attempt to solve that riddle as we talk one-on-one with Dave Scott Thomas, founder and coach of the club, and the man with the vision to put it all together. We'll also delve into something called the Legends Box. It's an unusual collection of stories that'll help us understand the who and the what of the club. There's a lot to cover on this episode, tons of wild stories about a top-tier track and field club that started as nothing but an idea. So what Michael's referring to is um, a wood box that's about 60 centimeters by 60 centimeters on its base, sort of shaped like a little pirate's chest. Um, and on the top of it is burned in a Legends box. It's time to take a look inside the Legends box. Before we go over any of the contents of the Legends box, perhaps we should know just what it is. This is how Dave Scott Thomas, coach and founder of the Speed River Track and Field Club, Describes yeah, it. was done and created by Peter Sullivan, one of our early uh, uh, formative athletes and team leaders on the team here. Uh, and we, we were kicking around ideas. Uh, archiving information was done differently then. I mean, you had the internet and the web, but it wasn't quite, uh, it wasn't quite as easy to access stuff. And so I have a lot of archives results in binders, and we had uh, Mark Vollmer used to make up photo albums with goofy captions every year, and I've got them stored in the, uh, the storage room behind us. But we are also just talking about how a lot of the fun stuff about the history of a program is just uh, storytelling. It's it's oral tradition. It's not times run or medals won or anything like that. It's the goofy anecdotes that happen on road trips. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's the things that uh, you didn't document and they live in the memory uh, in your memory and you spool them out over time. The the things where you sit on a deck twenty years from now and you kind of go remember that trip. And I think. There's a value in those things being a little bit fuzzy. 
you know, you're not really trying to demonstrate uh, anything quantifiable to anybody else. You're, you're trying to reflect on some awesomeness that you had, some fun or some craziness that happened. And so we were, at that time we were talking a lot about oral tradition and storytelling and uh, came up with the idea of a legends box, which would be things that really weren't necessarily just about, well, the team won that day or so-and-so set a record or, or qualified for a meet. It was just, they were mementos that would remind you of something kind of goofy and fun. So without further ado... You want to you wanna dive in? There might be some crap in there too. Uh, <laughs> that's the thing. That we're, I'm not saying that there's a high degree of quality control with it all. Uh, so we're flipping it open right now. And the first thing here is a, it's a Haas hat. Okay. Uh, so I'll tell you a bit of the story from a Haas hat. Uh, we used to drive vans back in the day to different competitions. Um, you could do that. So we'd take these, uh, these 12, 15 seat passenger vans and drive down there and, uh, we were driving down to Penn State cross country one time. We used to do that, and we got lost in the rain in a big storm. Uh, the van I was in, right. and uh, pulled over to a lighted oasis, and it was Hosses, which, as it turns out, is a, uh, a Pennsylvania sort of chain, uh, sort of base level chain. It's like this all-you-can-eat buffet kind of for like five dollars, and you go in there, and uh, a lot of pickup trucks with uh, rifles hanging in them. That kind of place, really friendly. And we went in, and the hilarity of it was if you got the buffet, you could get an orange uh, hunting hat for $3. And so uh, I went and talked to our server and said, can I get a whole bunch of those hunting hats for one buffet? I'll pay for them. Yeah, it would be just fun for our staff as a memento. Right. So we picked up these Haas hats, went to the meet the next day, and all of us as staff put on these Haas hats and ran around the meet. And at the end of it, our team was like, that was awesome. We totally knew where all of our coaches were the entire race, these bright orange hats. So it became kind of goofy. So from there, in cross country, our staff started wearing Haas hats all the time. And it just became a team thing. And as we brought new staff in or lost or destroyed hats, uh, a number of years later, I wrote to Haas corporate headquarters said, hey, this is the story. I was straight up with them. Uh, I sent them a few pictures from uh, CI Championships with our team getting the trophies and the banners with all the staff wearing Haas hats. And uh, now we have this relationship with Haas where every couple of years they ship us a new box of hats. And I mean, they're funny. They got like a deer. My favorite one is where there's a deer in a gun sight. I'm not a hunter. If this is hyperbolic, by the way, anybody who's listening, it's a little tongue in cheek and over the top. So we have like camel Haas hats. So we get Haas corporate headquarters ships us a box of hats anytime we want. It was a few months ago on a chilly Thursday morning that I sat down with Dave, the original architect of the collective, to talk strictly history and, by connection, the ethos and value system that form the foundation and culture of the group. We started with the whole idea of milestones. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting thing because I don't think in terms of uh, milestones it is... Uh We've been creeping forward for a long time, and if you continue to creep for 17 or 18 years, then you cover some ground. Um, I mean, the milestone is the start of the club in, right. uh, in 1998. That's the first one where we actually formed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then along the way, uh, I mean, my brain maybe doesn't work kind of quite in the like like yeah, you could yeah, say yeah. our first Olympian, and in my head I kind of go, well, uh, sure, because the... The evolution to me is more emotional and relational based, and that is just continues to grow as you bring new people in and as people graduate and evolve. And, uh, you know, so I tend to, I, th- I think when I hear milestones, I think of people thinking of uh, 
there's a specific event or a moment, and generally it was something where you could point to it and go, gee whiz, uh, look at that, we, we built that thing, or so-and-so ran that fast, and my strongest memories are generally the things away from the high-end performance level of things. Right, you know, so... It's like a van trip to the Midwest where you had yeah. a, a, a neat conversation or mm. you built a relationship or where somebody had a, a tough go of it, not even through competition, and you were able to mm -hmm. be a part of that and, and evolve. And so that's just something that we continue to do. I think it's the core of, of our identity. So you mentioned 1998. Is that yeah. when the club started or yeah. is that when you kind of came up with the idea and started to think about, you know, next steps to getting it together? Uh, no, the... The notion of a club at this level existed before I moved to Guelph, in my head. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons I moved to Guelph. Mm -hmm. So I was in Victoria at that time, and uh, we moved here because it seemed like, and, and we being Brenda and myself, because it seemed like fertile ground to start something new from the ground up. So the resource base wasn't that big. But specifically when I talked to the director of athletics at that time, Dave Cobb, mm -hmm. about coming here and working with the varsity program, that conversation included, I'm going to start a club program, a registered club program, and we're going to try to build that up. And uh, right from the get-go, I mean, when I arrived here, I had a little spiral notebook, and I just wrote plans down, three-year, five-year, seven-year, ten-year plans at that time, and then right. filled in the gaps in between. And as yeah. far as those goals and stuff for your five-year and ten-year plans, yeah. did you hit, did you check all those off? No, no. Um, but again, ideas are cheap. You and I and a cup of coffee could spin 10 ideas out in the next 10 minutes. And it, it continues to be part of how we evolve, uh, just ideas. They're not hard to come up with. And then it's deciding which ones are tractable and which ones you can do. And some of them you have to test out. Some of them you think them through and run them to their conclusion in your head. And you kind of go, well, that's not, this isn't the time to do it or it's actually not going to work. But we've had a lot of things that we've tried and haven't worked, and mm -hmm. we'll continue to do that. How I've learned is trying stuff out and then just getting my butt kicked, and it doesn't work. And you, you learn from that. And then sometimes you have to let them go, and again, I, th I think there's a certain uh, tendency to get emotionally attached to an idea. It becomes your baby, and you want to see it to fruition. And I'm capable of that, but there also has to be a, a clean and reasonable assessment of when it's not going to work and right. when you have to let it go. Do you think that's something that you've learned? No, since I've had that for a very. Club, I've had that for a very long time. You've, I've refined it. Okay. Um, you know, I, I refined it as we moved along, but I think that that's something formative that was uh, uh, really passed on in my family culture as a kid. I had parents that were uh, strong in education, but really open in pedagogy and philosophy of life, which is to say, we had a pretty rigorous household in terms of thought and understanding questions of why and values mm -hmm. and then a lot of free reign you know so my brothers and I were raised in an environment where we were allowed to explore a lot mm -hmm. and generally the question we would get is just why why do you mm -hmm. think that way or how do you believe that way so I had that um, uh, relatively open view of how you can proceed through life and again why would you limit yourself conceptually it's just an idea Right. doesn't cost you anything, you know. It's, uh, it, it could be neat or it could be, uh, you, you know, whimsical, but why not entertain it? And if you get bogged down in too much literalness with that or the fear of that open-minded thinking, then I think you're going to stunt your ability to, to grow and do anything. 
One thing that I, I guess I kind of want to know about is, so you look at the landscape now of Canadian track and field, yeah. and I would say that you guys have definitely made your mark on it. For whatever level, I guess right, that's, that's right, judged right, right. by people other than me, but uh, okay. Um, what was that? What was that landscape like in 1998? Was there a club like Speed River in Canada? Yeah, yeah. There was. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure. I've really invented much here. Truthfully, mm -hmm. I think we've refined some ideas. Moving here to Guelph, and, and it was sort of a homecoming. I'd done my undergraduate and master's degrees here, so I knew the university, and I had some people. Into, I didn't have relatives here or family or anything, but. I was familiar with the city, and uh, uh, I felt that it was a place, again, that was open to developing an integrated system where the collegiate program and the club program and a number of other uh, pieces of the puzzle could all come into play. And at that time, because it was, it was less significant than it is now, maybe, I would, mm -hmm. significance in the wrong term, possibly, but uh, the resources were less. Right. Uh, for sure. It seemed like you could build something up there which was different than other communities that I was assessing. But, you know, if you look back to, I, I, I had been in Victoria for a couple of years before I moved here. If you look back to that culture and scene, mm -hmm. that was phenomenal. And it continues to be a strong environment today. If you look back to the KJX Club and uh, what Doug Clement was doing in Merrick Edgezeak out in Vancouver at the time, and other people as well, other coaches, it was very, mm -hmm. very good. So, it's an interesting place. I perhaps playing Canadian track and field in the terms that of kind of my generation, few sort of carried it on professionally. There's right. a lot of people of my generation who competed and were involved, you know, back in the early '80s, mid '80s, who are still around. Mm -hmm. But in terms of sort of uh, carrying that awareness and what I would call our the cultural DNA of our sport, mm -hmm. I don't think there's that many people that hold on to it. Like you asked me that question, I think, man, right. uh, you look at uh, uh, Jerry Swan. Mm -hmm. Valley Royals, uh, there's a guy who, how many great Canadian athletes did that guy coach? And you don't see him involved anymore. Mm -hmm. And there is a guy who was very principled and sound and a bit of a character in his own way. Mm -hmm. uh, so there were a bunch of environments like that. The Montreal scene was really hot. There's been tons of really good scenes around this country. So mm -hmm. we're just one of some now. Would you say that's, that's one of the goals of Speed River? Uh, is to not just have something that I guess you could say was a blip on the radar, but something yeah. that will be a pillar of track and field. Yeah. yeah. Um, my conception generally is to, uh, I'm a bit of a backyard guy mm -hmm. in the sense of there's an environment here that I have some role in. And it's a bunch of partnerships. I'm partnered with the athletes I coach. Uh, I'm partnered with community members and people on campus. And so hopefully we share some common vision and ideals. Mm -hmm. And that's no different than competition to me in the sense of if you do that and it's driven by values and it's clear-minded and it's altruistic and you're generally sharing in the whole adventure together, you're just going to end up in a certain place, mm -hmm. which is to say the, the values and the process to me is the priority as opposed to looking at just an empirical goal. You're listening to Something in the Water. Look at the Speed River track and field team. Without further ado, it's time to reach back into the Legends box, an unorthodox collection of mementos and memories that tell the story of the team. Okay, this one I like. This has got a soft spot in my heart. This is a hand towel. It's from William Grant's Finest Scotch Whiskey. 
Um, that is because it's a hand towel that was used by our first thrower in my time here, Christoph Wand. And Christoph Wand is a bit legendary just as a character for us, but uh, uh, absolutely no joke. The first day I was sort of cleaning out the office space I'd been uh, granted when I moved here, so that was in uh, August of 97. Uh, you know, the sun was blocked out in my doorway by Christoph sort of filling it up, walking in. He's 300 pounds. And he just said, uh, I hear we got a new uh, track coach in town. And I was like, yeah, that's me. And he said, I hear you're open to having field events, in, which we historically hadn't had. And I said, absolutely. Uh, you know, you're a thrower. Yeah. I said, uh, what have you done? And he said, I can throw a 50-pound rock 30 feet. I was like, okay, what the heck? So he started throwing. He was one of two field athletes we had uh, the first couple of years. And he threw weight, 35-pound weight, and um, uh, which was new in CIs at that time. And he didn't, he was a Highland game, he's a highly intelligent guy, but he's a Highland games thrower. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing. So we, no jo joke, were throwing logs and tires and rocks around. And we didn't know anything about technique. So he threw the 35 pound weight one handed. He's just a monster. He would just walk into the circle, pick it up in one hand, and kind of like, Rah! and he finished uh, fifth at CIs. And that technique got banned by the coaches after it because it was just deemed as too chaotic and potentially unsafe. And, uh, and they're probably right. We, we actually didn't really have close calls, but you never really knew where that thing was going to go. But this was his hand towel from Highland Games, Grant's whiskey hand towel, that he used to dry his hands between his one-armed throws and, and whatnot and uh, get it out there. And then for years, we still, when we hosted meets here at the end of it, uh, we would do the, the one-armed weight toss just as a bit of nostalgia, and he'd come out for old time's sake and just lob that thing under there. There you go. There's the hand towel. The, uh, what can we do here? Um, there's going to be, uh, one, oh, here, here's one. I think at some point of uh, the podcast, you're going to interview Trent Stellingworth. Uh, Trent has a, a strong reputation as one of our country's foremost sports scientists and the lead IST for Athletics Canada, and all of that is true. He's an ethical, highly intelligent, motivated human being, and I love him, and he's just professional and just a terrific guy. I also knew him back in the day as a young athlete, and uh, he was capable of being as goofy and having as much adventures as anybody else. So, uh, so Trent, if you're listening to this podcast at some point, maybe a bead of sweat is breaking out on your forehead right now. But uh, what I just pulled out of the Legends box here was um, it's Rose Bowl, and it's, uh, it's canned clams. It's an old can that's open. And uh, that was at the National Champs. Some CIs, I think, were in Windsor that year for track. And Trent and a couple of the guys were going to drive down. So they took a car, and they were driving Jason Hendrickson, a guy on the team's car, which was a, a junker. And uh, at one point, uh, driving through town, the exhaust dropped with these guys, and the car the car was having trouble moving anymore, and they had to repair it. And uh, they're as clever as raccoons, right? So what they did was they ran into the nearest corner store, which is a little uh, Asian shop, and they bought the cheapest can they could find, which is this can of clams. It's $1, it says, and it's on sale. Cut off the end, stuck the exhaust system through it, duct taped it, and drove down to the meat. So they solved the problem, but the consequence was that thereafter Jason's car stunk to high heaven with because they essentially cooked the innards of this can and these. Like you can see how black it is. Yeah, uh, Mike yeah, was looking yeah. at it like it's just it's just baked on there. Yeah, yeah. So they got on there. The car was rattling and no, like it literally was just duct tape in a, in a can of clams and whatnot, Rose Bowl clams that they cut open. As was mentioned off the top, the facilities in Guelph now are pretty sweet including a fairly new field house, a fast track, as well as weight rooms, pools, pretty much everything that an athlete could want. 
As you'll soon hear, though, it wasn't always that way. And that's where we picked up. You know, we had uh, a 440-yard cinder track that wasn't kept up. It was dirty and messy and ruddy, and uh, you would seldom use it. We'd use it a little bit because that's what we had. You just had to be prepared to get dirty as heck, you know, uh, when you went on that. We didn't have an indoor facility. We would still commute once in a while to York uh, to do some indoor workouts and, and occasionally over to Waterloo to their rec center. Um, and you just deal with that hard surface and rec walkers mm-hmm. and you just, that's what you got. Mm-hmm. We, we did almost all our training outdoors mm-hmm. in the, uh, the winter. Um, we commuted in the summer, commuted, short commute, 5K up to St. James Track, which was one of those uh, chewed up rubber tire tracks uh, right. so entry entry level track right. with holes in it right down to the asphalt uh you know when we started doing uh, uh work up there i would break hurdles apart and pack them into the trunk of my car and drive them up there and reassemble them and put them out there that was our early steeplechase days and the athletes would run up there as a part of their warm-up and then they'd work out and then we'd break the hurdles down you know any equipment we just had to to ferry around in the car although having equipment was a couple of years down the pipe we mm-hmm. didn't at our genesis, we didn't have a med ball. Um, we didn't have starting blocks. We didn't have any of those things. Basically, it was a bunch of uh, hungry people in a van. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of our workouts were outside mm-hmm. right through the winter. Um, and one of our breakthroughs, I remember getting excited about uh, sourcing conveyor belts from Sleeman's Brewery. You know, I made a connection with a brewer and, mm-hmm. and we got old belts off the line and we put them in a hallway here on campus that was about 40 meters long. Mm-hmm. And that's where we drill. And at that time, that was a breakthrough. We were like, man, we got conveyor belts and a hallway and, and it's not very well trafficked. And we just, we'd drill and you'd go up one side of the belt and drill up and you'd jog back. And so, uh, you know, uh, so if you certainly look at where we were then to where we are now, it's night and day. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you mentioned all this and, and how resourceful that you had to be. I mean, you started with nothing and tried to make it work just based on, you know, your love of the sport, the athlete's love of the sport. Yeah. There's there's something really pure about that and, and something yeah. almost kind of, you know, romantic about it. Yep. Do you think that some of that has been lost with the club's growth? Potentially. Nostalgia is an okay emotion. And so when you say mm-hmm. there's something romantic about it, that that's okay. There are certainly evenings where I would sit around or uh, often you tell a story and it sounds kind of cool back in those days. It was raw and it was immediate in the sense that, you know, I arrived and I was about 24 hours ahead of the team. I mean, I I drove here from the West Coast and and, uh, uh, slept on a futon on a floor and just got up and the next day met a team and started coaching. Mm -hmm. And so there was an immediate kind of response there. But... If I'm truthful about it, uh, I was exhausted a lot of the time. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're doing 70 to 80 hour work weeks and there was a, we didn't have kids at the time. So a lot of time you'd finish coaching, I'd go home and grab a bite of dinner and then just come back and work till one or two in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, technology was a bit different then as well. So how you, you configure the system and what you had to do, sure, it was immediate. And you could look back at it with fondness and there were some great moments there. yeah. But it was very, very tiring. And you can romanticize the unknown and the excitement. It is, there's a tendency to look at a place you've arrived to and then to backfill the narrative. Mm-hmm. And in a way, 
you could look at where we're at now and say, well, there's been some success in this story. You know, I have a viable job and we have a viable scene and more athletes and da 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 da. So at the time, I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, so so the romanticism of that, again, if, if, if we could go back in a time machine, didn't exist then. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was uh, nervous and anxious most of the time because the whole system could implode. Mm-hmm. It could not have worked out. And I had moved here. It was the second time Brenda had followed me uh, across the country. Uh, and we both have uh, multiple degrees in other professions. And so from a, a, a question of, as a couple, our personal economy, it was not sensible at all. If you look at the gap, if we had held our other professional jobs into what we were bringing in those first three, first three years here, it's massive. That wasn't our justification for moving here. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, in terms of societally how we often measure success and status and finance and whatnot those things didn't exist we didn't know it was going to be successful Mm -hmm. so the truthful moments i have with that are uh, it worked out so that's great and now we can tell the stories right but i mean there were just most nights i drove home beat Mm -hmm. and tired and there were a lot of nights where i just thought what the hell am i doing uh you know because there wasn't a job when i moved here Mm-hmm. It was a three thousand dollar honorarium position. Mm-hmm. That was our income, and Brenda didn't have a job, and we didn't have big savings. So, you know, most of that time, like we were weeks ahead of paying the rent, and uh, I mean, I drove a three hundred dollar Dodge Omni to get around how we built we built that system yeah. around it to, to to go and recruit. Um, so. As much as there were a lot of fun moments, and I can tell you some great stories about things we had to do to be resourceful, and they are pretty cool stories now, there were also times where I would, you know, I would recruit and I would go to a meet and just get my arse kicked. Nobody wanted to come, and there was sort of this, uh, not overt mockery, of course, but you could Mm -hmm. tell people were sort of humoring you by listening to you and uh, whatnot, so... uh, the soul of that, the, the humanity or whatever you want to call it as we've evolved is something that's really dear to my heart. So when you talk right. about the resources we have now and how relatively well off we are, which is true, mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons it would be very hard to get me out of this place is because of that memory that I've got. Mm-hmm. And as long as I'm here in the head coach, uh, as much as I can, we have to retain that humility and that vulnerability and that rawness and that same drive like no part of me thinks now well we did all that work i can Mm -hmm. back off i just uh i don't feel wired that way so i feel certainly as raw and enthusiastic now as the day i started you mentioned the athletes and obviously now that you have more resources obviously i think that it's a little bit easier to get people here and to train so something tells me that those first couple athletes must have I don't know, just describe how you, how you got them here, you know, how you're able to say, look, this is what we have, but I have a good feeling about this. Well, you ask effective questions, <laughs> so because <laughs> there's lots of places I could go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe we can explore this a bit more. I don't see it or feel it as easier to get people here now. I know externally that might seem the case. Right. Uh, there's no time frame or year where, you know, essentially consider the Guelph Griffins and Speed Rivers the same unit. Mm-hmm. I mean, some a lot of our post-collegiates never ran here and whatnot, but right. essentially it's just trying to create an overall community environment. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, you have to recruit. I don't find it any easier now than back in the day. No part of me thinks I could take my foot off the gas and relax and talented people are going to show up. And 
because of how I would ideally like to have relationships with, with athletes, in fact, the vetting process has to be a bit stronger. Hmm. Uh, here's the difference. In the day, if you were coming here and we had recruited you, I knew you were coming for intrinsic reasons because, because you couldn't. Like our, our, our big overnight trip was going to Windsor for one night and sleeping eight people to a room. Mm-hmm. You know? So if you were coming here back in the day and made that commitment, there was a bit of um, your motivational forces were implicit and understood, whereas I'm aware now that some people will show up and arrive and they want to come here because of reputation. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that or because we have a better track or, uh, you know, you have more to offer. And that's still with a certain segment of the population we talk to uh, out of high school and post-collegiately is uh, like, what's the stuff? You know, mm-hmm. it's an empirical question and it's right. okay to ask those questions, but I'm looking a little more deeply than that. Mm-hmm. So all that said, that first generation, you're correct, will always, always have a pretty special place in my heart for that. And I'm lucky that I'm in touch with so many of them uh, still mm-hmm. right now. And, uh, you know, in a friendly fashion, but these are people now that are, well, geez, I'm almost 20 years here now, soon they're late 30s, almost 40, some of them, you know, so they have professional jobs. Uh, you know, they've had families, and as much as that group built us competitively, athletically, it's way more inspiring to go to a wedding or hold uh, one of their kids in, in my hands than anything they ever achieved here, any medal they ever brought home. So that that essence of it is still something that I would look for in a coach-athlete relationship or staff relationship we have now. Like, like you mentioned the outdoor track, and it's great. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad we have it. You know, and, 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 and I do as much as you can have an attachment to an inanimate object. I do because right. of the project and how it unfolded and where we're coming from and, and all of those things. Um, but I'm fortunate I still kind of have that uh, grit with a lot of athletes and that trust today. And we would say, despite all these things that we have, mm-hmm. if it's you and me in a cornfield, man, we're going to get you 95, 96% of the way there. And that, that stuff... It certainly helps at the high, high end if it's done well, but it can't be what it's about. This is Something in the Water, a look at the Speed River track and field team, and we're about to reach back into the Legends box. Oh, here's another one. Memory lane for me. Our first CIS track and field medal in an endurance event, because we actually had medaled a bit before in uh, high jump. You know, I mentioned Christoph Wand and throwing and coming fifth, but Glenn Scott was a tall lanky guy wandering around campus uh, and we j- I just said hey man you look tall you ever high jump yes I did sir and, blah, blah, blah. and he he actually uh, in my time was our first CIS medalist he got bronze in high jump Sean was a, a guy that I coached in high school in Victoria uh, when I was there before I came to Guelph who uh, made the brave leap was uh, he was 152 low guy out of high school and when I came to Guelph uh he decided to, to come along and join the adventure and try to build something out of nothing. And uh, he, so this was August, man, and applied to Guelph, and he got in here, and he came along, and a couple of the other young Victorian guys that I coached, junior group out there, came along. And uh, as a quick aside, I'll love those guys forever, man. They are just, I'm still in touch with all, all of them, uh, and they're just wonderful guys and uh, really high-spirited. Uh, gave me a lot of gray hairs. Sean uh, was a bronze medalist in the... Uh, the 600, it was in Montreal, 
and a uh, good guy and he just tore it open off the back end uh, you know really punched through so that, that was great but I remember finding him in the corner of the field house afterwards and he had this sock in his hand and uh, there's a hole in it and he was poking his finger and he was just like a five-year-old so curious about it and I was like what are you doing he's like Dave I ran so fast I burned a hole in my sock and there's a little bit of blood on it like yeah. you can see the red mark here he, yeah. he punctured a blister in the sock this sock is, uh, what is that now, 15 years at least old. It has not been washed or changed since that race. It's just been sitting fermenting in the Legends box that time. But uh, I still remember seeing him like a little kid poking his hole through the sock and looking at it, you know, be, being so so sort of in awe that somebody could run that fast that the force of friction would burn a hole in, in, in textiles, you know. What else can we go into here? Uh, oh, these T-shirts... Mike Bowles was one of those early Victoria guys that came and joined the group here. Mike was, um, uh, I coached through high school, uh, and these were talented guys. He was on a glide path down to the NC2A, and when I came here, uh, decided to follow. And uh, his whole story of how he got here is a bit of an adventure in and of itself in recruiting. Do you want to hear a little bit of the story of... Sure. Yeah. Um, Michael had a pretty... Um, supportive family but it was very definitive about what he was going to do so I went and I talked to the junior group in Victoria and said hey listen I've decided to go to, to Guelph and run that program and uh, the resources are quite a bit different but we're going to try to build something and uh, Ron Boker I told him he was a, he was a, a coach and the head coach for AC at the time I said oh, you think your guys are going to go with you and I said I don't know no they're all they're all going to other schools and who changes their mind in August and he's like I think you're going to be surprised so Sean came and joined us. Lee Glazer uh, came along and joined us. Mike was uh, a dude uh, who I thought, he's so focused on NC2A. Right. Sister went to, to Washington and all that. So he called me one night and he said, hey, so about me coming to Guelph? I'm like, all right. And he said, but my parents want to talk to you. The version of this story may become a little apocryphal. I'll give you a bit of it condensed. But essentially, I went to his dad's house. His dad was a firefighter. And I met mom and pop in the kitchen with Mike. And Mom and Mike sort of had their head down, and their dad was a pretty uh, brusque guy, good guy. Right. He looked at me and he said, uh, I just got to tell you, this adventure is not going to happen. My son's going down to the U.S. He's running in the NC2. He's not going to Guelph. And I was like, whoa, hey, 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 that's not what I'm trying to do. Talk about your family, you know. Yeah. And he was like, okay, just as long as you go. you're a good guy and you've done right by my kid through high school, but that's the adventure, man. Right. And you're going to Guelph. It's nothing about Guelph. Uh, and I was like, okay. And then he said, uh, but Mike says you like whiskey. You want to drink a whiskey? Yep. So we had a drink of whiskey, and we finished that, and we were talking, and uh, then it just ended up being Papa Bowles and myself sitting there, and he said, you want another drink? And I said, no, I'm okay, thanks. And he said, well, you don't like my whiskey? And I, I, I'm going to condense about the next five hours. <laughs> but it involved Mike Bowles driving me home back to, to Brenda, my wife, and signing going, I think that went really well. And, and I remember his dad grabbing me by the head, looking me in the eyes and saying, all I can tell you is I feel really good about my son running for the University of Guelph right now. So uh, you can imagine what the, the ensuing five hours were, were, were like, and those are adventures. And Mike came here and... He's a good guy, man. Uh, yeah, a bit of a philosopher-poet type of dude and uh, ran tough and hard for us and, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, has done walkabouts globally. But that year, the first couple of years here, we used to always have a bit of a joke uh, and a theory uh, that I could probably beat everybody on the team at some event. I would get to choose the event. 
it was goofy, so I don't mean this to come across in an egotistical sense. Right. Uh, the team was a little bit smaller. I was running a bit more. Uh, these were more talented athletes than I was. But generally, you know, I had a little bit short end. I could pick anything, like a 60 maybe. And if I got lucky and could get a little flyer, maybe I could get them. Or if it was one of our 800 guys that had enough equity in my legs, I'd just say, <clears throat> let's go run Starkey Hill, which is basically a hilly half marathon loop, and right. I get right. tired. So uh, at one point, Mike said, where do you think we should uh, match up uh, in a competition? And uh, we decided to do a mile, which still goes on with the team to this day, and it is done the Friday before exams in April. Um, and it used to be a little more of a hardcore mile. We'd wear old t-shirts and I measured it a mile. It's a very slow course. It starts in the middle of campus and we did it in the middle of Friday afternoon. We have a, a cannon here in the middle of campus and it starts at the cannon and the first 400 meters is uphill on red brick past the library, past the, you know, it loops around academic buildings. It's a wheeled mile and it finishes by the third tree in front of our athletic center. And we used to time it and it was a throwdown. And uh, so men and women would do it, and it was always a challenge. Essentially, it was, um, there was a decline in my performance over the years, and it was a bit of a goof. If I could beat somebody, yeah. now they're coming off transition phase, so they're vulnerable, and I might be a little more focused <laughs> on it. <clears throat> so generally, it was just sort of intra-team kind of jocularity, you know, and you'd, you'd have uh, fun and uh, fun with it. But we had these superhero T-shirts, you know. There's uh, Iron Man on one, and there's uh, uh, Daredevil on the other, and we wrote goofy slogans. And then if you won, you would write your name on it. I mean, look at the people here. Here's Reed Coolsat. You know, he won in 2003 in 5:05, right? So there's your two-time Olympian running 5:05 mile. Yeah. But he did it in 4:29. And uh, Greg Hutchinson, you can see on here, Steve Bendo. These guys all were. You know, uh, impactful uh, CIS uh, runner Sean Kingerly. We just told the story of his sock. Like 4:30 on that is a is a good time, okay. and you can see uh, the women's times on here as well. Uh, uh, Nadine Devon, Michaela McClure, Ali Dryan, and Michaela McClure. I still remember one time finishing myself and puffing away, and I could hear her yelling at me behind you, Dave. I'm getting you. I'm kicking you down. <laughs> So we'd all finish in high five and people on campus would come by, professors and department heads and cheer was just a bit of a thing. And then you would sign this t-shirt and the next year you would wear it in the warm-up, kind of like the, the, the yellow jersey for the Peloton. For any big endeavor, there's usually a moment of clarity. A spot in time where all of a sudden it makes sense and you know you're doing what you're supposed to. I asked Dave. When did he have his moment with the group? Some of that was even before I got here. And um, there were, I was walking into a situation that was, uh, you know, I knew it was a good school in town and, and there were neat trails and, you know, some of the, the things that you would like to have. Uh, I was fortunate that the guys that had been coaching here ahead, both of whom had left, and at that time, Guelph was considering dropping uh, cross country and track. You know, and it was a low resource sport and, and it, it had performed sort of, it had spotty uh, kind of history. There'd been some very good athletes, but it hadn't had sort of that high in continuity. And the two guys who were coaching had uh, left, both both friends of mine. And that's how we sort of ended up, Brenda and I, in this gamble, if you will, of the program. Right. Um, but so when I arrived here, there was a very talented group of women that were senior athletes. And you know, they were ready to go. And we, we won a title in 97, the first mm -hmm. national championship actually in any sport at UG on the women's side with it. And 
how much did I influence that in 10 weeks? Right. You know, the best I could tell you is yeah. I ran into a bunch of super talented, awesome women who were ready to go, mm-hmm. and I didn't screw it up. Hmm. You know, looking at the arc of my career, I mean, I, d- I drove the van. Hopefully I helped them. Right. You would have to ask them if I was any part of the yeah. bigger arc. But really, you, you, you know, you understand your role that you, you play, and it was relatively speaking, pretty small. They spent most of their collegiate time working with, with other really good coaches. And uh, the guy's side, and again, I, I just say that because it, it's not a gender difference because of how genders are wired or whatever. It was just, I coached a decent group of junior guys out in Victoria. Right. So when you talk about the, the specialness of it, oh, yeah, you know, it was... Uh, Victoria was a rich scene for me. I made some great friends and I learned a ton. And... Uh, you know, moving here, it was difficult for those reasons. And I worked with some Brent Fogner and Ron Boker in particular were just really formative coaches for me. Really generous uh, guys. But I decided to come here and start something new and run mm-hmm. a program and build it from the ground up. And I had a few uh, good junior guys at that time, Sean Kindley, Mike Bowles, and Lee Glazier, who were all looking at other schools. And when I decided to come to Guelph, I mean, this is July. Think of that in, in the context of when students make decisions about schools now. It was July, and I sat mm-hmm. down and talked with them, and uh, they were all finishing high school. Right. And I said, here's what I'm doing, guys, and I'm moving to, to Guelph. And then I went and I talked to Ron uh, Boker at the track and said, I'm going to move, man. And he was really supportive. He said, how many of those guys do you think are going to follow you? And I said, right. I, I assume none. And he said, yeah. oh, you're going to be wrong, man. You're so wrong. Yeah. And that night, Sean and Mike called me and said, we're coming to Guelph. Let's go. Hmm. And then Lee later mm-hmm. came along. I'm still in touch with those guys. And... Uh, you know, would I run through a brick wall for those dudes? For sure. They changed right. their educational pattern. They moved here. You know, these are uh, Victoria dudes that never thought of coming east to go to school. I drove out here and got on the ground, and uh, Sean and Mike arrived, and for their first couple of weeks, they just slept on the floor in this little single-bedroom condo while they got a place, mm-hmm. and, like, they just hit the ground running. So, uh, you know, my first year, I had these guys that I knew reasonably well. Uh, Drew Graham, uh, was a rookie coming in, and Chris McLaren was working on the farm. There was a guy who never made a top-offs uh, as a high school student that went on to become an All-Canadian, you know. So, mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, Jess Campbell-Rogers came as a mid-D athlete. You know, I look, I got an old picture someplace of that gang, and I look back at that, and uh, I'm still in touch with them, and they're just terrific human beings. So, for sure, <laughs> long-winded <laughs> answer to your question, yeah. man, you know, uh, they got me for life. Like anything they need, they're just they're just good people, and I'm lucky that I know them outside of the the coach athlete relationship now. So we're a couple of weeks out from you know the U Sports Championship, yeah. uh, where the the Guelph Griffins, I on both sides were very competitive because of a good all around team. Mm-hmm. You know, sprints, throws, yeah. uh, as well as the distance. What was your like initial blueprint for Speed River? I mean, obviously you can't start with such a, a wide range right off the bat what what did it start with yeah so we had uh it sounds like a you know blue chips that old uh, gene hackman movie but it was kind of <laughs> like that um you develop little aphorisms or mantras or slogans or whatever you want to call them in your head you know mm-hmm. and uh one of them that i just kept telling myself was recruit or die <laughs> you yeah. know yeah. and i'd drive around there were there were certainly a lot of no's at that time uh, but there was a tall man walking around campus who looked athletic by the name of Glenn Scott. And I bumped into him and just said, by chance, did you ever high jump? And he was like, yeah, yeah. And he's from New Lisgard. Mm-hmm. He 
thrower found me. I was emptying boxes out one day, and this, uh, these things start to sound like urban myths, and I suppose you mythologize them in your own oral tradition of right. your history. But, but it's true. Christoph Wand, all 300 pounds of them, came banging on my door and said, I hear you're the new track coach, and I hear you're open-minded about starting a field events program. And so those were our field athletes that year. And uh, Glenn went on to medal twice at CIs in high jump and bronze mm-hmm. medal, and Christoph finished fifth in weight throw. So right. we'd, we'd go, and we didn't have implements. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole story there. We, 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 uh, the guys put on a kegger and got some money, and I found out a right. retired throws coach <laughs> who had a couple milk crates of stuff in a shed. Mm-hmm. And we went and we, we buffed them down and painted them, and those were our, our implements. But that was, that was the end of the first year of the program. Those guys, again, I'm still in touch with both those guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Glenn's a teacher now up north, and he still, uh, once in a while, I get an email from him saying, hey, I got a northern kid with some talent. You want to take a look at him? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And so we just started to expand from there. We trained those guys in an elementary school gym, St. John's, about 4K mm-hmm. off campus, you know, because uh, we didn't have any. We, I still, uh, Zoltan Tenke, who's the national jumps coach, had retired from Toronto and moved to Guelph. And you could do a book on that guy, man. You know, he mm. passed away uh, a couple of years ago. But uh, he came in, and I found him, and uh, we went up for a couple of beers. And I was just like, I need some help, man. <laughs> How about that? So yeah. that was my coaching staff for a long time. It was this chain-smoking, uh, boozy, uh, retired Hungarian guy. I love him to bits. Right. And uh, I remember going to watch a jumps practice, and it was he and Glenn Scott at St. John's Elementary School. And... Matt Glenn was jumping into, I don't know, like in my mind's eye, it couldn't have been more than 30 centimeters thick, you know? And I mm-hmm. thought, oh boy, we, well, we're just going to do it. Yeah. You know, but so there was a certain open mindedness and resilience to that team of that generation at that time of just like, let's just, let's just do it, man. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and there is a great deal of fondness in my memory and my heart for those people. You know, I think. The, the overall theme to all this, or something that's mentioned in everything, is the city of Guelph. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the, the trail system and, yep. and how you've really been able to make things work off of that. Yeah. How important would you say that this city, specifically Guelph, is to the Speed River story? It's the community, and the community is comprised of people. Mm-hmm. So you reference a few things that have been part of our resource base, and that and that's true. It was um, how you think these things through, like the, the, the weight of things or your resources is multifactorial. Right. You could say we have great trail systems here, and it's, it, mm-hmm. you, you and I could walk out of where you're interviewing me here today, and we could be on 50 kilometers of dirt trails uh, by rivers and through forests, and you'd see wild animals, and is that part of who we are and our success story? Absolutely. I don't know to what degree. Mm-hmm. The... The city is a concept, right? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's emotionless. It's, <laughs> it's, it's bricks and mortar. It's the yeah. people that make a community. Mm-hmm. So I guess when you say the city of Guelph, mm-hmm. you're, I hope you're referring to the community and the people that Definitely. occupy it. Mm-hmm. And that is always, for me, and I think always will be the primary consideration. Mm-hmm. It's... Um, you know, I think through, uh, there was an old, old TV show called The Larry Sanders Show, Larry the Comedian, you know, and it was, it, the, the style of it has been often aped now, so if you go and watch it, you'll say, oh, well, I've seen that before, but it was, right. it, it was the, the, 
generator of a certain type of comedy. And if you go, uh, Gary Shanley's a really, he's passed away now. He's a really, I think, smart guy, thoughtful guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll say here's a disclaimer. I have no interest in being a comedian. I'm not mm-hmm. funny. I can't tell a joke. <laughs> I can't, you know. But I'm interested in relationships and language. And he was quite clear in terms of the writing of that. Like the, the root of that was the humanity, the characterization. Because a lot of these characters could be nasty. But mm-hmm. underneath it, there was this love of it all. And similarly so moving here there was a consciousness to the community identity of what could be achieved Mm -hmm. i knew some people here that was an advantage um you know they weren't more on sport a lot of it was in academics my old grad supervisor was still here people that i had known in terms of uh local governance Uh, i was on students council when i was here were around it's a it's a liberal community um Mm -hmm. You know, the, the general value system of Guelph, but again, you're talking about generalizations. I like the fact that there were a lot of women in positions of authority here. Our mayor was a woman for a long time. You know, Guelph has had a fairly progressive hiring policy, you know, our, uh, our MP. That was important to me. There was an open-mindedness and tolerance that generally exists in this community that was important to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 it's not perfect. Uh, and it's not to say that everybody in Guelph was open-minded and tolerant all the time, but there was a feel for that community mm-hmm. that was intentional. And in terms of Brenda and I assessing where we wanted to live and how we wanted to build something, I think there are fewer little internecine Nessine pissing contests that exist here. Right. I think there is generally a tendency to be able to go and visit somebody and talk to them in real time. Partly that's the size of community mm-hmm. uh, that it is, you know, that might get lost in some big cities. So, and I most definitely am not a big city guy. This is about mm-hmm. as big as I would care to go. I right. absolutely could live in a little wood cabin on a lake on my own yeah. and be uh, perfectly content and happy doing mm-hmm. that. So that was more important to me than whether we had a rubber track or starting blocks. Right. I, you know, I, I didn't know how we was going to solve those problems. Building mm-hmm. a rubber track is hundreds of thousands of dollars. Sure. And I now know how to run a campaign at that scale or a fundraising campaign. At that time, I didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, was, I felt confidently that if you had the right people involved, mm-hmm. you could do something special. And that was intentional in terms of when I developed... Uh, conceptions of where we wanted to be years down the road. You've been listening to Something in the Water and it's time for one last peek into the Legends box. Let's see. uh, Oh, this one is kind of a... Oh, an old horseshoe. I gotta think of where that came... Oh, that's from our old manure sales. Uh, We sold manure for years as a fundraiser. I could not take credit for the idea. Laurier Primo gave me the idea. Laurier, who's the head coach at UBC now, but he got the idea from Derek Evely in uh, Kamloops. Okay. So uh, shout out to Derek Evely for developing this as a fundraiser and uh, passing it to Laurier, who we absolutely stole it from. Right. But this was the idea, and we called it Speedy Manure, Speed River Track Club, and we ran it like a little spring business for right. years. And uh, at its high point, uh, it, was a, it was a scene, man. Like uh, Kyle Borzna managed it for years. And we would set up a phone line with Speedy Manure and we would print off flyers and we would get our junior kids to deliver thousands of these flyers through Guelph in April in right. mailboxes. We'd assign neighborhoods. And basically it was like fundraiser for our track club, you know, help, yeah. help us get to nationals, help us do this. 
call us, email us, and we'd set up these drop boxes and people would call in and order bags of manure. And we found a, a manure distributor uh, down near Ancaster and we'd get uh, a couple of dump trucks of manure and we negotiated with our arboretum a couple times and grounds people and they drop it on campus and uh, for a couple of days we would get our entire club out with scales and bags and a bag is 40 pounds and we'd fill 40 pound uh, bags with 40 pounds of manure and zip tie them and seal them up and uh, and then we would have areas of the city and we'd rent trucks. We would do north of 2,500, 3,000 bags, 40 pound bags in a day uh, of these things. So you'd have teams that would be shoveling and bagging and then you'd have delivery teams, you'd have a driver and a navigator and then you'd have guys. And, and if think of some of the best Canadian athletes. Like I'll tell you, I, did, I was the driver one time in a, a rental truck from, uh, from Budget my navigator was young Kyle Borsma, and the manure slingers in the back were Jay Canton and Reed Coolsat. You know, you, it doesn't matter. You couldn't, yeah. you, like, no Olympian was immune from this. No, like, there's a couple right. guys that year that had run 756 or 3,000 indoors, and everybody just got into it, and there was a couple of adventures you would have. And we would drive around to houses that had ordered them, right. and the navigator would run and collect payment, and the manure slingers would haul bags. I'd jump out, and we'd all haul bags. And one of the advantages if you manure, ordered manure from us is we would uh, not, you wouldn't have to just come and pick it up. We'd deliver it to your doorstep and where you wanted. So you might get somebody who's there and not that strong and some of them would order 20 bags of manure park and run in and drop off the manure and uh, we actually found this uh, horseshoe in the pile of manure one time when we were doing it so that's in the legends box but you can see it's uh, there's a little bit of the, the representative of the horses on this thing here and that's got to be like uh, 20 some years not 20 some 15 years old probably now You've been listening to Something in the Water, a look at the Speed River Track and Field Club. This episode, we've taken a look at where the team has been, and through that, it's not hard to see where they're going. If you want to follow along with the team, you can do so on Twitter, at Speed River, and at Griffin Track, as well as on Instagram, at Speed River TFC, and at Griffin TF. For more Canadian track and field podcasts, be sure to follow at the Terminal Mile on both Instagram and Twitter. And of course, for more track and field news and great running podcasts, check out SidiousMag.com or find them on Instagram and Twitter at SidiousMag. I'm Michael Rokas, and before we go, I'm going to leave you with some final words from Dave. If you have good relationships, and that does not mean it's easy. In fact, you actually have to get to a point where it's okay to disagree or have some friction. You have to get to a point where you're capable of storming. And that's painful. It right. still is, mm-hmm. you know. But you have to, if you, if you understand the, the strength and the trust of that relationship, you're able to go to those places. You're able to go to challenging places and uh, disagree on things, but know that your intent is the same. Mm-hmm. I was more interested in being in an environment like that mm-hmm. than I was in high-end athletics. Right. It's, it's part of uh, an ongoing potential identity crisis I have with my profession. Hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know, coaching, like, my coach, man, I, like, I don't know. And right. I'm comfortable with numbers, and I like energy systems, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I have a couple degrees in the hard sciences, and, and I've, I've worked professionally in research, and I understand that. But to me, that's a piece, that's a tool you can use for this outcome of community growth. Mm-hmm. So, 
elite track and field becomes a vehicle for you to push those relationships. And it's a relatively safe vehicle. Mm -hmm. Because what are the stakes involved? Right. You, you don't win a national title? Okay. In the day, competitive yeah. Dave kind of goes, if I thought that was realistic and we don't do it, mm -hmm. I'm like, all right. Yeah, you're bummed out in that day. Mm -hmm. But if you, I mean, let, I would give you an example that's in real time. Well, not real time today, but, but near term. Uh, we didn't have a strong cross-country season on our men's side this fall. Right. Statistically. Right. It's just obvious. Mm -hmm. And culturally, certainly on this continent, often when you say that, people take it offensively and personally. You know, I, I coach a bunch of young guys that might listen to this podcast at some point, except we've talked it out. So right, okay right, right. What you have to know at the baseline is, did you as a coach do the best you could that entire season? Did you program the best you could? Were you the best uh, leadership figure that you could be, the best authority, did you give the best advice? And it's no different than an athlete. Did you do right. the best you could? Mm -hmm. Well, then the outcome is just the outcome. Right. You know, and this might sound naive in retrospect, but if I'm honest with you, I woke up the morning of CIs last fall thinking our guys were probably going to be fourth mm -hmm. and we had a shot at third. Mm -hmm. And that was just a quantification of the talent of our athletes in the training and my confidence in peaking and looking at it. And I think I'm pretty good analytically. Mm -hmm. And we were ninth, which is obviously way off of, of where I thought. You know what you have to ask yourself in that point in time? Mm -hmm. I got to look in the mirror and say, did I blow the peak or did I do something technically wrong? Right. Um, am I working with talented, motivated guys that are sincere? Mm -hmm. Yep. And mm -hmm. then you, you break it down technically. I can explain why we didn't perform that well. Right. But it doesn't change the outcome. We, I mean, and you can look it up. So, but you can't roll that into your esteem, your group identity too far. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to the root of what you're saying, which I think is critical to who we are. You get the right people, you work at that, you perform to the best of your ability, and a consequence of that is you will get this empirical outcome. Mm -hmm. That's secondary. Right. However, I believe that if I'm competent at what I do, and my staff is competent at what they do, and we have this pool of athletes here, if we do it to the best of our ability, I believe that outcome will be winning a bunch of national titles and putting people on national teams and going to the Olympics. Right. But my goal as a first run with anybody is to be a good moral guide and nobody's, nobody's perfect, obviously. Mm -hmm. I will be imperfect. If you're here working with me for four or five years, you're going to see me tired and fatigued some days, flub something at some point. But what I can bring is integrity and best effort. I can guarantee that. And that's all I would ask in return. And I think we've, we're at a point where it's, I have to also be confident to say, if we do that, we should have a bunch of people on the 2020 uh, Olympic team. Uh, it's realistic for us to try to win a bunch of new sport national titles. There are a bunch of other people that want exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. And that's healthy. Competition is a healthy thing.